when we talk about replenishing our stock, what we ran into is that fallout of COVID forced some of our suppliers to close either temporarily or permanently. Others were just not interested in working with us or we weren't interested in working with them. It was this kind of great moment of reflection where we got to decide and prioritize what was really important to us at that moment. I'm Nelson Murray, and this is Talking Squarely. In this series, we bring together independent business owners to have frank discussions and share their perspectives on some of the most pressing issues impacting their lives and livelihoods. As a result of COVID-19, many small businesses have had to reevaluate how they manage their inventory due to changing shipment schedules, fluctuating availability, and changing consumer demand. They've had to contend with too much product or even too little, forcing them to get creative in how they run their businesses. Today, we talk with two business owners about how they go about sourcing for their business, the impact COVID-19 has had on their supply chains, and what they're doing to ride the waves of these changes. There's so many aspects of supply chain that affect uh, coffee. Coffee, the product itself, is a global thing. That's Carla Mancio, the head roaster at Red Bay Coffee in Oakland, California. Red Bay works with an expansive network of international coffee growers with an emphasis on sustainability and fair trade. Global events like a pandemic can have a big impact on when she receives new orders. It's very expansive, but then it's also very, very local and very particular. The things that we put our coffee in and how we put them out. Also, where do they get those from and what it means when everything stops and how do we get the things that we need to continue functioning on the big scale, but also on the very small scale. For Ian Van Dam, who runs Civil Alchemy in St. Louis, Missouri, complexity is also a challenge. His boutique offers a variety of goods, from international apparel and home goods to liquor and fresh flowers. We are not only a retailer, but we're also a lifestyle brand that services and supplies other retailers and boutiques around the country. So we work with about 35 suppliers nationwide, ranging from Nepal, India, Scotland, Lithuania, Canada, and then also domestic suppliers and local suppliers from even here in St. Louis, Missouri. So our supply chain is extremely complicated. And really the most simple part is getting it once it gets here into the store and merchandising it or connecting it to our retailers. Each country comes with their own set of complexities that changes our strategy for uh, ordering and supply chain. But once they're here, it's typically pretty simplified on that level. Well, paint me a picture, Ian, of what supply chain sort of the flow normally looks like. If I were to actually come to Civil Alchemy and see a mixture of some of the home goods and perhaps furniture and other items on your floor, what is the journey that each of those items took to get there in normal times? So there are certain products that, you know, have launched this year that we've been working on for several years to get right. Other things were pretty quick turnarounds, and so those two things are affected there. For particularly our products coming from Asia and Europe, you know, those products have lead times that can range anywhere from four weeks to eight months. So we're really looking to the next two to three years right now. And, we're, and then obviously things like our flowers and our liquor is going through its own distribution channels. So even on the stuff that is not a part of our brand, there's so many different ways that these products are getting into our shop. Carla, knowing that coffee is inherently an international product, at least for us in the United States, can you talk a little bit about what a normal supply chain flow looks like for you at Red Bay Coffee? Yeah. So on a normal year, <laughs> coffee 
you know, it's kind of, we're kind of on a six months ahead of time uh, because coffee has to get harvested. It then has to get processed, get on a ship or get from the mill to the ship, from the ship, you know, to wherever it's going. And coffee is a very finicky product in the way that it likes very particular climates. <laughs> and so uh, any kind of climate changes definitely affect the timelines, right? If it starts raining a little too early, then the coffee doesn't get processed in the way that it typically would. And that might affect quality. It definitely, you know, it gets a little nerve wracking. You're like, okay, am I going to get the same coffee that I'm expecting and that might base our, a good portion of our product on? And finding a way to stay committed to our partners because their their livelihoods depend on this as well. And mitigating those differences of like, okay, if I'm getting a slightly different product, how can I deal with that on this end? Carla, you bring up a good point about seasonality and the expected unpredictability of your supply chain. I have to imagine that there are sort of normal ebbs and flows to your inventory and how you can source things from different vendors given where they are in the world. Ian, can you speak to that a bit? One of our goals when, when we really started looking into product development is that we wanted to create aesthetically a seasonless brand, but that still doesn't take into account the fact that volumes change regardless of what the product is. One of the things that we ran into pretty much right as March happened is that the assumptions of there will always be sales and you'll always be able to move through things totally was shattered. And it really made us go back to the drawing board about what the rest of the year was going to look like. Similar to most retailers, there was kind of a couple of different ways that we were looking at this. And it really really did in some ways feel like a gut decision slash risk deciding how to gauge how much to bring in because this isn't really something where numbers or data or modeling can help in any way. You know, you don't account for what I think we can all consider a disaster taking into consideration about what sales are going to look like. So on our end, we didn't pull back, but I know a lot of retailers and a lot of other brands at our size definitely scaled back. Is there an ethical consideration behind this planning? Carla, are there partners that you've continued to support despite it being more of an effort to do so? The reason why we are Red Bay is to you know, improve diversity in specialty coffee and the people that make money in specialty coffee. We aim to work with women's groups and indigenous groups and groups of people of the African diaspora and making sure that it's not just convenient when things are easy, but definitely supporting each other to get through tough times. Internally, for me, are the partnerships that we are getting into or supporting the ideas and ideologies that we come to the table with. We want to see women farmers be more prominent and usually in countries that are producing coffee, women's status is not the liberty that I get to enjoy here in the States. And so wanting to work with groups that are wanting to help women become more independent, financially independent through coffee farming, that in general, coffee is a male-dominated industry from farming to coffee roasting. The number of coffee roasting women uh, has definitely increased over the last decade. So finding partners that we believe in, that we think that they have a great product and that we can try to help with importing partners that we have made connections with already and vouching for them and saying, hey, we believe in this coffee and we believe what they're doing and we want to work with them again. And it sounds like that's primarily done through the vetting and relationship building, but then of course the actual where you are spending your money as a brand and choosing to invest in buying your inventory. 
Yes, correct. Buying bulk, that's that's a big commitment and wanting to make sure that we put our money where our mouth is and paying almost double for what, you know, is considered C-price for all of our coffees. The C-price Carla mentions is the trading price on coffee set by the Intercontinental Exchange. All coffee is priced as raw material, regardless of origin or other factors. Although this price has historically stayed quite low, it can change based on supply and demand. Ian, how do these kinds of questions come up with you in your mind at your business, especially given the wide variety of projects that you're creating and sourcing from around the world? One of the things that we really stress for in adding new products and designing new products is that we're looking to have a collaborative conversation with our makers and suppliers globally by really working with them to create unique designs that still are inherently genuine to where they're being made and honest to where they're being made. So, you know, when it comes to jewelry, we we work with several makers, several multi-generation family jewelers in Jaipur, Rajasthan, who have done a specialized in silver jewelry making for many, many years. So working with them, not only to create new products that are unique in the space, but by using and lending their experience in traditional jewelry making as well. And that seems to be kind of a connecting factor for what we're doing. We've really tried to identify and source our products from family makers and smaller scale suppliers, typically companies that employ somewhere between 10 and 50 employees. And so it sounds to me like you have found a way to establish lasting and kind of quality relationships with suppliers who meet your quality standards. In other words, you found a way to sort of balance ethical considerations and sourcing things with being able to offer a more unique product with a story behind it. Is that right? Absolutely. We're not looking to burn and turn through makers. We're not looking to play hardball. I think a lot of the larger retailers kind of have to, to be competitive. We're looking to create honest business relationships so that we can both be in a place of trusting each other to grow together. I'd like to now turn to what the first thing was that each of you noticed when the pandemic truly took hold of each of your supply chains. Well, it was definitely after the shutdown. Kind of a funny story. It's funny now, but it wasn't funny then. About three days after the shutdown happened, you know, we had sent everybody home. I was coming into the office by myself, just trying to pick up the pieces and figure out what we were going to do. I think much like any other business owner, we were definitely nervous. And right about then, a giant delivery showed up and it was the leather bags that we have been designing and developing for three years. It was a huge investment, both time and money-wise. And I guess it couldn't have come at any worse of a time because I don't know if you remember, April 1st is not necessarily when people were investing in leather handbags. Can you talk us through the timeline of when the shutdowns started taking place and what your thoughts were in the aftermath of those changes? Those two weeks basically from March 21st on, we our sales plummeted. And when you see that, you start really getting concerned about what does the next three months look like? How soon is this going to be over? So I think it was a natural intuition to just shut down, hunker down, and try to move through what we had for a little bit. And we kind of went into somewhat of a survival mode. And Carla, what about for you at Red Bay Coffee? You know, I think when big tech started working from home, two weeks prior to the shutdown, the California state shutdown, we started 
seeing a dip in orders. You know, we supply two coffees, two micro kitchens, to quite a few different tech companies in the Bay Area, which is very exciting, but also very nerve wracking when a good portion of your sales are being supported by that and trying to be adaptive and quick thinking and light on our toes and focus on our e-commerce and making sure that we could sustain the demands of losing one, two, you know, we went from four retail locations to two retail locations. You know, some of it was completely shut down for a couple of weeks. So I think our very first shift was definitely the shelter in place five pound bags. You know, specialty coffee price ranges can be from 13 to $20, depending on what you're getting. So we were offering five pounds of what we called black gold. It I was going for $88 and people were like, well, yeah, I'm spending all my time at home. So I'm just, uh, you know, I'm going to stock up on coffee and booze. Uh, so... <laughs> And, uh, and probably mix them both. So I think that once curbside opened back up, I think people were just wanting to get out and have some sense of normalcy that they were willing to, you know, we did our best in providing a space in which they felt comfortable coming into. And people were able to buy those bags online. Did direct-to-consumer become your focus? Our e-commerce structure was already there, I think, because we were thriving in other aspects that maybe we weren't paying attention to it as much. And we were like, yeah, yeah, it's there, order online, you know. And I think that the need definitely brought it up to our attention that we could, you know, we could streamline it. We could make it more accessible, uh, connecting it to our Instagram so that people can look on our Instagram page and direct link and buy from there, making it user-friendly and accessible and optimizing our our network to the emails that go out. And I think that there was much more of a focus in making sure that we fulfilled the needs of our grocery markets that we do have as accounts. I mean, that's where people were being able to get their coffee. And so making sure that our relationships were strong and that we met their needs and that we were flexible because their demand was different. You touched on this a bit. I'm curious to sort of set this up as a question for both of you. You touched on marketing and how you ended up having to change the way that you communicated to each of your customers about what it was that you had on offer and how those things may have changed as a result of the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit more about your marketing strategies and perhaps conversations that you had internally about how you were going to adapt to the changes in your ability, for example, to have a physical presence for your customers, but also the changes due to the difference in types of inventory that you were able to So, you know, right after this happened, about two weeks in, our sales were way down um, in almost every single category. People weren't buying apparel. They weren't buying accessories. All of our fresh flowers had gone bad. Basically, the only thing that was selling for us in our entire store was our wine, beer, and spirits. Luckily, one of my dearest distributors in town gave me the idea and said, why don't you do a pre-order? Because, you know, the conversation was, this is the only thing that's selling, but I just can't take the risk. I can't be wrong to the margin of two, $300 right now. It's me. I kept one of my managers on and I basically, I sat down and put together a plan. Like, what is the minimum amount of money we need to make sales wise to keep ourselves in place for the next six months to a year? And the margin of error was very slim. So when we introduced this, our strategy became, okay, we're going to basically become a liquor store. 
store like right now. And I, our plan for marketing was I was just going to get on Instagram stories and basically just talk directly to customers and say, look, it's me. I'm here at the shop. I'd love to get you whatever you need. I know that you're looking for wine, beer, and spirits. You may not feel comfortable going to the grocery store right now. I'm a local business and I can help you. I can get pretty much anything they can. Let me be the person that facilitates that. And immediately we had just an outpouring of support. I think that second or third week I packed up probably, and we were doing at that point a weekly liquor pre-order. I think we packed up 200 orders in one day, which was incredible. And the average size of these orders was huge. I mean, people were ordering cases of wine at a time. So it was huge. And, you know, like I said, we turned into a liquor store, a boutique turned into a liquor store overnight. And that was kind of our strategy for a while. And then after that was working, we really felt good about that. I had my manager that I kept on. She was working from home and was just getting as much as she could on our website. All the stuff that we had kind of said, maybe this doesn't make sense in our website. At one point, we wanted our website to be mostly our brand and then key items that kind of worked well and curated well on our website. But that swiftly went out the door to a get everything on the website and then we'll just start posting about it. Try to pivot to digital right now. So these were not even exclusively changes in marketing strategies. These were truly pivots in your entire business model and the kinds of products that you chose to prioritize to basically meet consumer need at that time. Absolutely. The only thing that changed marketing wise is up until the shutdown, I really was hands-off on a lot of our marketing. We had a person that was a marketing specialist who had worked with us and had since gone on to start her own business. And she was helping us on the side. And at that point I said, you know what? I think I need to handle this. It's just me here right now. Let me see what we can do. And I just got on every single day and just, you know, tried to try to keep it positive. Just tried to show people what I was doing at the shop that day. Well, to an extent, you've answered this next question, but I'm curious if the pandemic has really changed the way that each of you think about sourcing and if, and if not sourcing so much how you present your products to your customers. Carla, you can start there if you'd like. Sourcing. I think it just reinforced the idea of um, community, right? Uh, even though our partners in different countries are far away, that doesn't mean that they aren't a part of our community and being supportive and, and making sure that we communicate that, again, through hard times, we're in this together and we will find a way. I think that the other issues that we encountered regarding supply chains are bags for coffee. Also put it in our mind that we we need to be ready to source from other places and have a list of people and companies that have the same values in repurposable products and recyclable products and the carbon footprint so that when things like this do happen, we have other partnerships that we can definitely support. It was very interesting because I felt like I was a new driver. So everything, you know, came to a halt and everything was like all breaks. And then we had uh, the Black Lives Matter protests happened and we popped up on every support black owned company list that was available for coffee. And so we saw a huge, huge influx of traffic, you know, in the summer. And I had kind of steadied myself and was like, okay, let's continue to move through some of this product you know as I start talking to partners I'll really reevaluate and and forecast for things that as they are right now and you know what is the most truthful honest commitment that I can make to them 
Well, Ian, for you, it sounds like Civil Alchemy has pivoted entirely to being a liquor slash flower shop. Is that the future of your offering? Or do you feel like you will revert back to offering other home goods and furniture like you used to? We opened back up to limited audience probably starting in early July. And when that happened, obviously certain categories started to open up again for our sales. The other thing that had happened right about then, and even really a month before that was our wholesale all of a sudden turned back on because literally I know certain states, obviously well, we all know this, but different states, different regions, different markets were kind of opening up and all had these, there was a very diverse array of public perception on when it was okay to open. So, you know, even though we were uh, in stay-at-home orders here in St. Louis, in St. Louis County, we had stores that were either doing well online or had opened back up to limited audience in other parts of the country that were still ordering. And that was huge for the summer, especially because people were selling and not reordering all of the second quarter. So when third quarter hit, all of a sudden that turned back on and we had to start scrambling to either expedite our orders or add orders so that we didn't run out of product. At the same time, you know, we're starting to hear about all these businesses in our own local economy are starting to close. And that was heartbreaking, obviously. So I think there was this moment where we realized, wait, there are things that we can do locally and domestically. There are extremely talented people who are hungry to work with us right now. We don't need to cancel this product. We can find somebody. And I guess it's still outsourcing, but in my mind, it's insourcing. We were looking local. We were looking within. Because in a lot of ways, we saw the supplier dynamic of working with local makers to be a little bit more stable because we took out one key element of the equation, which is moving the product from its production stage into our shop. So that definitely was our biggest pivot. It was starting to look inward again about further balancing out our ratio of makers, both internationally, nationally, and locally. Carla, what about you? How are you thinking about your relationships with your partners? Sales to us is keeps us moving. Our product is a live product. It has a shelf life. The longer that it sits, the more expensive that it becomes and quality uh, starts to decline because it's a live product. So knowing that sales were not anywhere near the goals that we needed to meet to be moving the inventory that we had committed this year and finding a way to still try to move product so that when we have to start conversations with our partners for next year, that we can take maybe not the same amount that we took this year, but close to it and making sure that, again, renewing our commitments to them that even through hard times that we together we can get through this. Rather than cut their inventory or end relationships with key partners, both Ian and Carla leaned into what makes their businesses unique. They continue to support the networks of independent makers and fair trade suppliers and have found creative ways to sell their products or pivot to new categories entirely. While global supply chains remain unpredictable, their quick thinking has helped them find stability and a renewed sense of purpose. A special thanks to Ian and Carla for their perspectives on managing supply chains and seller relationships. Civil Alchemy is located in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find them online at civilalchemy.com. Red Bay Coffee is headquartered in Oakland, California. Check them out online at redbaycoffee.com, and you can find their mobile coffee truck at rbc underscore coffee underscore van on Instagram. You've been listening to Talking Squarely, a Square production. This episode was produced by Mallory Russell, Cindy Lewis, Elise Bailey, Evan Grohl, Travis Gonzalez, and Camille Kale. Our music was composed by Jordan Wallace with sound recording by Sorrentino Media and D.R. Baker. I'm Nelson Murray. Thanks for listening.
The views and opinions expressed in Talking Squarely are those of our guests and do not reflect the official policy or position of Square.